everyone. Welcome back to Stage Directions. I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger. And since we're pretty much all holed up with the coronavirus and all the Broadway theaters and many entertainment sources are shut down, I know the Broadway closure is significantly affecting me personally, um, I thought that today might be a really great time to talk about the economics of Broadway and how that whole thing works. I promise it's more interesting than it sounds. Um, but I get a lot of questions about, you know, really how does it work producing a show and how is money made and how does all that happen? And there's a lot of nuances that I think um, people, unless you are actively working in that profession, aren't necessarily aware of. And they're actually really helpful no matter what you do in the arts. Again, I promise it's more interesting than it sounds. Um, I'm not talking from a script. I'm really just sort of talking off the cuff like I'm having a conversation with you. So hopefully all's good and we can have an interesting discussion today. Um, so first off, way back in the day, um, the way that, that New York was actually built, like the geography of New York, has actually really affected um, the way that theater and entertainment happens. Um, when I was at NYU, I don't know if he still teaches it, but if you get a chance, Larry Maslin teaches a really great class on the history of Broadway, like literally Broadway, the street, and how that affects entertainment and everything. It's really it's really wonderful, and he's a really great teacher. Um, Broadway, the actual street, a lot of people don't know this. The reason that it's the only street in Manhattan that doesn't really properly function on the grid, I mean, the West Village kind of excluded, is because Broadway used to be the Native American trail through Manhattan. And so that was the one that kind of stayed the same, and they built the grid around it. And when New York was originally being built, everything kind of started south, you know, down at the Battery, and moved northward. So back in the day, the real entertainment center of Manhattan was actually around 14th Street. And you can still sort of see the remnants of that, you know, there's still some theaters down there like the DR2 and um, and whatnot. But that was really where the epicenter of everything was. And things like the Hippodrome and whatnot then got built, starting to move north of there. So basically what would happen is things would start building south. When that got too crowded for people to fit there anymore, then they would move north and build there. And then when that got too crowded, they would move north and build there as well. So it started really with the epicenter being around 14th Street, and then it moved north to 34th. Um, that sort of area. And again, you can see the remnants of that with things like Madison Square Garden and whatnot. Not saying that Madison Square Garden was built back in the 1800s per se, but you get the idea. Although it has been there for a long time. Don't remember the exact year. Um, then again, it started to move northernly as well. And you get where it sort of is now with 42nd Street, move north again for Lincoln Center. And now there's some lovely theaters that are even more north of there. Um, but basically, that's what happened. When you ran out of room, you move north and build thing, built things north. And because of that, most of the theaters, uh, most certainly most of the Broadway theaters in New York, are historical landmarks. And you'll definitely notice this when you go in. The bathrooms are very small. Um, a lot of times the lobbies are, are tiny. The hallways are narrow. They definitely don't have elevators there. You know, yeah, I'm sure we've all heard, you know, somebody complaining, you know, why aren't there more stalls or why isn't there an elevator? They're historical landmarks, and it's very limited what you're able to actually do with them. There actually have been a lot of changes and repairs made to a lot of those theaters recently, which are beautiful. But again, they're still very limited in what they can do. So one of the things that it's important to note is with those more historical theaters, 
Um, you know, technology has changed a lot today. You know, we have very complicated sound systems that certainly didn't exist when these theaters were being built. Um, we use flies and traps and automated machinery. It certainly didn't exist back in the day. And so that's always a really interesting challenge to overcome whenever a show is brought into a new theater um, is, is how are you going to fit the requirements of the show into the space that you have. And that sort of leads me on to the first part in sort of how a show gets done in a Broadway theater. I'm talking about Broadway specifically, I, I suppose. Um, so basically, let's talk about the genesis of shows. Back in the day, again, it worked very differently. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that back in, let's say, like the 1900s and, and earlier, but the 19 early 1900s and like 1920s are really when what we know as musical theater really started. Um, and musicals are usually what take up the bigger budgets of things on Broadway. The Black Crook is widely considered to be the first official Broadway show. The origin of that's really hilarious. And I'll talk about that at some point. But sort of from like, let's say like the 1910s until maybe like, let's push it to the like, late 1960s, early 1970s, although even that's pushing it a little bit. Um, what the economics really were was it was much more cost effective to have lower budget shows and have more of them. So back in the day, you would see dozens of shows going into a theater in a given season. And that was what made the most economic sense. So you create a show, doesn't cost that much money to put on, you put it in a theater, it's pretty fast to recoup its investment and make money. And then that show leaves and you have another one coming in. So there was always new things for an audience to see. As we will get to, that has definitely changed and is not the model under which things operate anymore. So also back in the day, it was a little bit easier for new writers to sort of get a chance. If somebody was an up and coming writer, they'd written something really interesting. It was much easier for a producer to be like, okay, I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a couple months at, you know, whatever theater it is, and we'll see how it goes. And if it was a flop, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. So a lot of people got more of a shot. And that's sort of how, you know, Rogers and Hart, for example, got their start. They started writing songs, contributing to um, a show called The Garrett Gaieties, which was kind of the Broadway musical equivalent of SNL, where it would be sort of an ongoing thing, or they would have one come back every year, and they would um, create parody sketches and songs based on current news happenings of the day. So they would contribute songs to that. They did really well with that. And then somebody's like, okay, we'll give you a shot, you know, writing the music for this show. And so it was a lot more economically viable to take chances on new and interesting works. Um, so that also gets me to who actually owns the Broadway theaters. And again, this used to be very different back in the day. It used to be much more spread out. Today, it is literally three people, well, three companies that own every Broadway theater, the Schubert's, the Nederlanders, and Jujamson. Um, Jujamson got its name because the person who created it had three children. I think it was um, Judy James. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry if I'm getting this wrong. Somebody let me know. But Judy James and Cindy. So Jujamson. Um, so we have literally three Broadway owners now for every single theater on Broadway. Back in the day, that wasn't the same. You had a lot more theaters, and then they eventually got bought and conglomerated by these different owners. Um, so again, it was a little bit easier back in the day. Now there's three Broadway owners. So what does that mean for a show that wants to come to Broadway? It basically means this. 
if you have written a show, well, there's, I guess there's sort of two ways this can be done. One is you are a show writer, you have created a show, and now you want to get it developed. The other is a producer has a property and comes to you and wants you to write it. But in either case, a show is generated and created by whoever it is. Sometimes that has a producer on board um, before it's written. So for example, in the case of say like Beetlejuice and Mrs. Doubtfire, the property already existed. The um, movie studios and producers wanted to do it. They found a writing team and they knew that once it was written, it was going to go to Broadway. In other cases, you know, somebody's written something and then they want it to go to Broadway. So they need to attract a producer. In any case, a producer needs to be brought on board a show. And this can seem like a really complicated, I think, nowadays, because, again, back in the day when you had real impresario producers, you would see the name above the title. Like, you know, it was a David Merrick show. Not to say that there weren't other people involved, but there was usually like an impresario producer, only person name above the title, and they were the person doing it. Nowadays, you know, we're used to seeing like, 50 people get on stage at the Tony Awards to accept a Tony for, you know, best show. And even above the title, you have dozens of names. And then below the title, you have dozens and dozens more. Um, So it can get a little confusing about what producer actually means. And there's different kinds of producers. Um, Probably, arguably, the most important or certainly the linchpin is what's known as a lead producer. This is a singular person who basically takes on the mantle of shepherding the show into whatever state it's going to be in. Um, The lead producer is also thought of a little bit... there's, There's also sort of two categories of producers. There's what I'll call sort of the artistic producers and the financial producers. Artistic producers certainly are very involved in the financial aspects of it, but in general, artistic producers, which is primarily the lead producer, is the person who is sort of in charge of the ship, is responsible for bringing a team on board, for finding collaborators, for bringing other producers on board who are the investors, um, and that sort of thing. So the lead producer is really the shepherd of the production. So ideally what will happen with a show is a lead producer will see it in some sort of development. Maybe that's a workshop. Maybe it's a reading. Maybe they read the script. Maybe they're already friends with the writers and they're like, I'd really love to work on your new piece. In any case, at some point, they see a property, they really like it, and they decide to take a chance on it. Now, this also gets more complicated today, too, because, again, back in the day, it was very viable for something to happen. Like in Moss Hart's book, Act One, this is kind of exactly what happens, of a producer to literally get a script across their desk, be like, I think this is great. I'm going to take a chance on it. Um, That doesn't happen as much today. You know, lead producers are very busy. They have a lot of projects they're dealing with in lots of different stages. And really, the other factor is the economics, which again, we'll get to have changed so dramatically, that you really need to know that you're going to have a financial success on your hands. And so because of that, a lot of really significant players in the industry like to sit back and wait a little bit. You know, they'll they'll wait through the readings, they'll wait for some other producers to express interest, they'll wait for a regional theater or a smaller theater in New York to pick it up, and then they end up picking up the show when it's really at the point where it should be transferring to Broadway. Now, this makes a lot of economic sense for the producers, but it's not always helpful artistically for a lot of pieces in New York, because if you're constantly waiting for someone to take a chance on you and everybody's waiting for someone else to take a chance on you first, so they don't have to take the biggest risk, it ultimately kind of means that like no one's taking a chance on anyone. (laughs) Um, 
And this also plays into who people know and what their track record is and a lot of that. So basically, all that's to say, getting a lead producer who really knows what they're doing and is really qualified to do what they're doing is very, very challenging. There's a lot of people out there professing to be producers who don't don't know what they're doing. And there have been a lot of shows that have ended up having to fire producers because they've gotten them in some real hot water. But in essence, in order for your show to go, you need to get a lead producer on board. And I think we've all heard of these sorts of people. It's, you know, the Cody Lassens and the Daryl Roth and Jordan Roth and, you know, all these wonderful people that you've seen do such amazing work. Um, So basically, whether you have somebody at that level or somebody not quite at that level yet, who's also very good, you get a lead producer on board. And it's the lead producer's job to basically make sure or figure out how the show is going to happen financially. They come up with a game plan, whether that's we're going to do more industry readings, I'm going to call up this theater company that I know and see if they'll, you know, put the show up and then we can invite people to come see it. But ultimately, The goal is twofold. I mean, one, it is to perfect the show, but really by the time you have a lead producer on board, unless it's a property that they've already owned and are commissioning, your show's probably pretty much in a pretty solid shape. They wouldn't really be, unless certain circumstances are happening, they wouldn't really be taking a giant you know, financial chance on a show that wasn't ready to go up in front of the public, which means a lot of times new writers have to find a way to do all that work without a champion behind them and without a lead producer and have to get it to that point on their own. But basically, lead producers signed signed on. They've usually signed some sort of contract with the writers um, optioning the piece. And what that means is it gives them um, the, perm- the, the rights for a given amount of time. That could be a year. It could be three years. It could be five years. In, in Hollywood, options last can last a very long time. But basically, let's say it's let's say it's a year option. It basically says I have exclusive rights for one year to get this show up and produced. So it means that during that year, you cannot go to another lead producer. You can't give it to somebody else. Nobody else can produce it unless, like you know, your team is involved with it. Um, so that they can then try to get it up. They then come up with a game plan again, whether that's doing readings, whether doing a production or whatnot, to get it in front of other people. And these are other producers. These are investors that they know of. Producers guard their list of investors like in safes. (laughs) They will not share with anybody. But it's basically because they then have to get a lot of people on board who are probably going to be more on the financial side. Um. And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. So let's say they've done that. Let's say it's been successful. Let's say that they have, you know, they've come up with a budget. That's the other thing. They have to come up with a budget of what they think this should cost. They're bringing other team members on board, you know, in discussion with the writers. You know, they're choosing a director. They're choosing designers. They're choosing a casting director. They're starting to cast the show. Um, and that's that's the other reason why you want a lead producer that is artistically minded because they can often have really brilliant ideas about great collaborators to bring onto a piece. So let's say you're there. Let's say you have gotten your team, you have a great lead producer, you have additional producers on board and investors, and you've raised the money for, for the budget. Well, now you have to play the real estate game. And as we all know, there's a limited number of Broadway theaters. Um, officially, a Broadway theater is a theater that occurs in a certain radius. I believe I'm going to get this wrong, but it's approximate. Um, it's north of 40th Street and south of like 54th. Um, So right in there, and it's between like 7th and 8th Avenue, 
7th and 9th Avenue because the Hirschfeld's right on 8th. Um, and so if you are a theater in that radius that has 500 or more seats, you are officially considered a Broadway theater. Now, there are, are exceptions to this rule. Lincoln Center, for example, is considered a Broadway theater, and it's all the way up at 66th Street. Um, so there's a couple exceptions. But in general, a lot of people have questions about this, but that's what officially defines a Broadway theater, especially because there's a lot of other theaters like, you know, there's New World Stages and there's the little Schubert that are doing kind of Broadway level productions in a smaller theater, but they're very close to Broadway. So sometimes, and and a lot of Broadway shows have transferred to New World Stages. So it can get a little confusing, but the official definition of a Broadway theater is a theater that exists in that radius, again, with a couple of exceptions, and has 500 or more seats. That is legally what a Broadway theater is. And there's only so many of those theaters. And most of them are usually occupied. So basically, when you have a show that's ready, meaning that artistically it's ready, you have your team in place, you have a lead producer, and you have raised your budget, you basically have to go a courting to the three owners of the Broadway theaters, the Schubert's, the Nederlanders, and Juju Jamson. You have to get them in to see your show. You have to pitch the show to them. You have to show them you know, your financial plan, and you need to get them interested in the piece. And that's what is really interesting because at the end of the day, basically, if one of those three people isn't excited about your show, it's not going to Broadway. Um, I've sort of found more and more that the higher you get in the entertainment industry, um, the less it has to do with like, oh, are you talented or not? Like everyone's talented. It's sort of a given. It's whether what you're doing happens to be something that these couple people personally enjoy. It has to do a lot with personal taste, which is interesting and something that's not really talked about and actually kind of reminds me a lot of the idea of patronage in sort of the old days. You know, you it's not just about being good and being talented. You have to find the right person who happens to really just like what you're doing. Um, for example, I, I write a lot of magical realism, and for some people, they're just not big fans of magical realism, and that's totally fine and great, but you have to find the person that matches up with what you're writing. So basically, you have to get um, at least one of the theater owners to be like, yeah, I really like this piece. I'm going to put it on my list. The list is basically a giant list of shows not that they're interested in, but that they are interested in and that they are ready to go into a Broadway theater like now. They have raised their money. They have their plan in place. The theater owner really likes them. They go on a list. And then you have to play the giant real estate waiting game. Um, And this gets very complicated. Um, Again, A, because there's only so many Broadway theaters, but B, all the Broadway theaters are really different, and the theater that you go into is really going to affect your show. For example, the Gershwin, where Wicked's playing, is the largest theater on Broadway. It's it's sometimes referred to as the barn of Broadway. Um, Holds about 1,800 seats, and it's referred to as the barn because a lot of shows have gotten lost in there and haven't done well because of the massive size of the theater. Wicked actually, obviously, has done a really phenomenal job of fitting into the space, and it's a really perfect space for it. By contrast, Circle in the Square, which ironically is next door to the Gershwin, is, I believe, the smallest theater on Broadway with, I I think it's under a 1,000 seats, a few hundred seats. Um, So which theater you go into really affects your show. You know, there's certain houses that are thought of more as playhouses, and usually plays go into them more often. Um, The Barrymore is one I'm thinking of. The Walter Kerr. I mean, this is not hard and fast rules. Obviously, Hadestown is in the Walter Kerr right now. Obviously, Band's Visit was at the Barrymore. Um, 
but you, you basically, when you have a show, you figure out which theaters you think your show would be best suited for. So that narrows down which theaters you can go to as well. Also, which shows are long-running hits are is going to affect it. You know, if I write a show and I feel like the Majestic Theater is the most perfect venue for it, well, you know, I shouldn't hold my breath because Phantom of the Opera is not going anywhere. So that's that's the other thing. So basically, you get on a list of one of these producers and then you wait. And you may have a plan for economically what you think is best for your show. For example, you may feel like we should open around the holiday season. I feel like we need to be in a house that's roughly this size, you know, and you come up with a game plan of what you think makes the most sense. And then you could suddenly get a call from a theater being like, hey, so we're having an unexpected closing. If you can open in four weeks, you can have this theater. And maybe that theater is a wildly different size from where you feel like you should be. And maybe they're asking you to open either immediately or at a complete a time of the year that you think is completely detrimental to, to your show. And you then have to make a decision about like, well, do I grab the space while we have it? Or do I go back on a giant waiting list and hope that something else opens up? When you open really does affect a show, and there are seasons, there are sort of unofficial seasons on Broadway that are really determined by the Tony Awards, because the Tonys happen in June. They are in June. Now that I'm saying this in a public forum, I'm questioning everything I know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they're in June, and they're usually in June. And so once the Tonys happen, typically a lot of shows close immediately after that, depending on how they do. If a show doesn't win anything and they feel like they're not going to be able to carry through with ticket sales, especially because the summer months are dead for a lot of things. Because, you know, there's definitely tourism in New York, but the middle of summer is New York's not typically the first place people go on vacation. So a lot of shows will close sort of immediately following the Tonys if they didn't do terribly well, which means there's a lot of theaters opening. But opening your show in New York in the middle of August is not economically the smartest thing to be doing because you're opening at a time when everybody's running and trying to see all the shows that they saw at the Tony Awards. There's not a ton of people. Everybody leaves the city who kind of lives and works here in the summer in general. And it can really kill a show to open then. Starting in the fall, like September is technically summer, but like September, October, November, more shows start to open, you know, in the fall season, a lot more shows open will, will open in anticipation of the holiday season, you know, opening like again, November, December, to get all the holiday tourists in. January is really dead because you've just had all the tourists come in for the holidays. Everybody sort of spent their holiday money. And then January, everything's dead. So a lot of places, you know, if you're opening in the holidays, you're hoping that you're going to, you know, really get the ball rolling and get a lot of good word and whatnot to carry you through January, February. A lot of shows open in the holidays. And even if they do sort of well, they can't really survive the January, February slump, and then they end up closing. Then a lot more shows start to open in anticipation of the Tonys. In order to qualify for the Tonys in a specific year, you have to open within a window. And I don't remember what exactly those dates are, but basically um, between the previous Tony Awards and within, I think it's like um, a couple months of the new Tony Awards, you have to open in order to qualify. So a lot of shows open sort of right 
in the end of that window where they can qualify. And then they play for a while, they hope that they're going to get a really big boost at the Tonys, and then they either do, and then they sail through the summer, or they don't, and then they have to close. So basically, it's a giant waiting game of seeing when theaters are going to be open, and you have to weigh the pros and cons of, you know, do I grab this theater now, but it's at a time and in a theater that I don't think is going to be the best for our show, or do I wait? And there, I mean, there are shows that have like been on the list for a very, very long time, just waiting to go in somewhere because it's a giant real estate game. So in terms of those economics, how does that actually work in terms of producers and how people make money and all those things? Well, Let's get into that a little bit. And trust me, this will be very helpful for you someday, no matter what you do in the industry, because I think it's really helpful to know, because if you don't really know what's going on with producers and you're, say, like an actor or a designer or whatnot, you can maybe sometimes feel frustrated. And there are reasons to feel frustrated, but this is basically how it works. And you're talking to somebody who is terrible at math, and I wish that somebody had taught it to me in school based on contract negotiations, because I think I would have been much more motivated and understood it a lot more than abstract numbers. So basically, how much money your show can earn is 100% of the pie. And this let's, let's get into what that pie is. So in order to put a show up in the first place, you have to raise money. Well, what is that money going for? So that money is going, it's basically, you're basically raising enough money to get your show through the first few months of performances, because ultimately the model that everybody needs to get on as soon as possible is that the show is self-sustaining from the box office. That's where you want to get. So the money that you raise for a show, it's, it's basically taking you through, some of it's taking you through some development, but it's really taking you through rehearsals. It's taking you through out of town if you're doing an out of town. It's taking you through previews on Broadway. And it's hopefully taking you through like the first couple months of you like fully running. That's what the money is for. So when they say that a show costs like $30 million to do, that's what they're talking about. That's what the budget is. So it's going to pay people's salaries. It's going to pay the rental on the theater, which is a big thing. I mean, you the the producers the the theater owners don't have quite the same stake in the show as say your lead producer they certainly have a gigantic stake in the show but they're getting paid rent when you go into a broadway theater you're being paid rent you also have to pay like an upfront fee when you first get the theater so for example with spider-man turn off the dark when they talk about it costing like 70 million dollars that wasn't $70 million that was all going into, say, like the sets and costumes. A large part of that money was holding their theater because they got, they basically, they got the theater, the theater was open, they were going in, and then they started encountering a lot of problems. And they had, a, they basically had a choice, which was, do we continue paying rent on this theater? And even though we're not in it and we're not performing yet, and we keep having to push that back, but we want to hold on to the theater or do we let the theater go and hope that there will be another one when we need it? And they decided to continue paying rent on the theater. The theater owners also allowed that. I mean, theater owners have a say in, you know, what they're going to let people do, but they felt that Spider-Man was going to be a really long running hit and that it was a good investment to keep anybody else from going into the theater so that they could make sure that they got Spider-Man. So a lot of that $70 million budget was just every month or every week, depending on how it was broken up 
them paying rent for a theater that was not in use so that they could hold on to it to the theater owners. So that's where a lot of that money went. So you have to pay a down payment to the theater. You have to pay um, rent to the theater. You have to pay the salaries for everybody. That's another thing. If you are a creative on a show, like say you're the director, again, it depends on what your specific contract negotiation is, but you're not necessarily getting a weekly salary. Usually what happens if there's a big development process on a new show is a director gets, um, oh my goodness, the word just went out of my head. Um, They basically get a giant fee up front, and that fee is supposed to take them through when the show becomes self-sustaining and then they start getting royalties, which I'll get to in a second. But that means that, you know, a director is not necessarily making like an insane amount of money every week. Um, They're not necessarily weekly salaried like the actors are. They get a giant lump sum of money and then they have to make that last until the show actually becomes self-sustaining, which sometimes is an easy thing to do. And sometimes it's more challenging depending on what the trajectory of of a given show is. So the, the, money that's raised is covering that. It's covering the costumes, the set, all of that stuff. It's covering the rehearsal spaces. It's covering everything to get you through the first couple months of the show. The idea is that once the show, let's say the show's doing successfully and you're getting a lot of people coming, that then you have what's called weekly operating costs. And so you figure out what your weekly operating costs are, which include what your, you know, weekly or monthly rent is to the theater, what the weekly salaries are for the people that are under a weekly salary, what, you know, maintenance is, what your insurance is and all that. So you come up with a number of how much money per week your show needs in order to stay operational. And so theoretically, you're getting that weekly amount from your box office. And then everything above that that you're getting from your box office is going to pay back your investors, which again, I'll get to in a minute. So things get complicated with box office when a show isn't making as much money as they would hope. And then either that means your investors aren't getting money back, but your show is still sustaining, and then you have to sort of make a decision about what to do with that, or it's really bad and your show's not even self-sustaining based on the box office, and then you have to make, the investors have to make the decision of, well, do we put more money into the show hoping that it'll, it'll pick up, or do we just close the show and cut our losses? So when I'm talking about um, the investment for a show, like what investors are putting in and when you're raising your budget... The 100% of the pie is the amount of money that it's taking you to develop, get through rehearsals, and get through like the first couple or first few months of performing on Broadway. And so that could be however many millions of dollars that it is. So that's 100% of your pie. Theoretically, if you are an investor, the amount of money that you put in you get a royalty percentage that is equal to what percent of the pie you're putting in. So again, I am horrible at math, so let's make this super simple, and I'm probably still going to mess this up, so I apologize, and you can all correct me. But basically, let's say a show costs $10 million, because we're going to stick with 10s because they're easy, and I put $1 million into the show. Theoretically, that's 10% of the show's budget. Is that right? I think so. Let's go with it, because I'm just trying to make a point. Um, So theoretically, that means that I should be getting 10% royalties. Well, it doesn't actually work that way, because there's other people who need to get royalty percentages for a show. If I'm the writer of a show, I get a certain number of royalty percentages. If I'm a director, I get a certain number of royalty percentages. If I'm the lead producer, I get a certain number of royalty percentages. So suddenly, what percentage of money you're putting into the pot 
does not have a direct correlation with exactly that percentage number when it comes to royalties. So I could be putting in 10% of the budget, but say only be getting, I don't know, again, I'm making this up, all the producers out there are probably rolling their eyes, but say maybe getting like 5% of the royalties or 6% of the royalties. So this gets complicated because whenever you're doing a show that seems like it's going to be a hit and a lot of people want in, they all want royalty percentages. And this has been a big, big issue in terms of negotiations. Like one thing that has happened recently that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, um, it happened with Hamilton. It's been a discussion with a lot of other shows with actors saying that if they create, you know, roles in an original show that then goes off to be hugely successful, that, you know, they've helped make it successful in the way that, you know, a director has or whatnot. And so they then deserve to see a piece of that success because actors are getting a weekly salary. And when you're no longer in a show, you're no longer earning money from it. So it's basically the actor saying, we deserve, you know, a stake in it, which, you know, I think is a great thing to, to, to say, and certainly is deserved. The problem when it comes to a producer's perspective, sometimes again, there's a gradient um, of, you know, from being super generous to being super greedy, there's a gradient in there. But the reason that a lot of producers um, get nervous about something like that is not necessarily because they want to hold anything back, say from the actors, although I'm sure there are producers out there who that that's where it's coming from. It's because the second they give a percentage away to somebody else, it means detracting or subtracting from the percentages that their investors have. And the reason that this is a problem is because investors need to earn back their money. And how do they earn back their money? Um, It's from the box office. So basically, let's go back to that. So you have whatever you're making from the box office in a given week. You have to subtract from that what your weekly operating costs are because that's what's allowing the show to run. So anything that you have left over after that that becomes 100% of the weekly pie. And based on how what royalty percentage you have, like if I have 5% royalties, I'm going to get 5% of whatever that pie is. Well, if my royalty percentages have gone down because they've you know been giving royalty percentages to other people, that means it's going to take longer for me to earn my money back. And one of the tricky things about investing in theater as opposed to investing in, say, film, is you can make even more of a profit. Like something, a statistic I heard a long time ago is that Les Mis as of now, if you combine the Broadway productions, the touring, you know, like the merchandise, like all of the overseas, all of those things has now made more money than, um, Titanic Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars combined. That may no longer be accurate. Um, apparently it was accurate when I first heard it, but basically what that means is if you're investing in a movie, you can make a ton of money back in opening weekend, with Broadway, you could make even more money than that back if you have a, if a really successful show, but you're going to be waiting over decades to get that money back. So if I've invested millions of dollars in a show, you want the highest royalty percentages that you can get because that means it's going to be less time before you earn your money back. You're not going to have to be waiting extra years. So if you're a lead producer one of the ways that you're enticing people to become an investor is by offering them higher royalty percentages. You know, if for some reason 
if you're giving me $10 million and I'm able to be like, I'm going to give you 12% royalties and somebody else is saying, well, if you give me you know, 10%, I'm going to give you 6% royalties. Again, depending on what the show is, you're going to want to go with the higher royalty percentage. But if you start dividing up the pie more and more and giving royalties out to other people, then you have frustrated investors that are like, well, I, it's not a good investment. I'm you know, going to pull my money. I don't, you know, I, I need to be earning my money back more quickly. So this is the, basically, this is the game that you're playing if you're a lead producer trying trying to get investors in and also trying to do right by everybody else involved in the show. Because this is what a lot of contract negotiations are. You know, if you're a director, if you're a writer, all this stuff, you're basically trying to negotiate for the highest royalty percentages that you can. Because a lot of times royalty percentages extend to touring. And sometimes if you negotiate a certain way, they can apply to merchandise and, you know, all these other things. And you can stand to make a lot of money off of it. So these percentages are like pieces of a pie and they have to be given out in the smartest way possible for that to happen. I hope that makes sense. It's, it's a little complicated, but that's basically what that means. So let's talk a little bit about how Broadway has changed so much. Because as I said, back in the day, it made a lot more sense to do more shows that cost less money. And nowadays, the goal is, you well, basically, it's you do a show that costs a lot of money, but the goal is that you want it to run forever. And really, there are a couple things that change this. One is what's referred to as the Mick musical craze in the 80s, which is when you suddenly got a lot of what we now dub blockbuster musicals that were really pushing the boundaries of what could be done technically. And the Mick musical moniker is not to disparage anything. I think that these shows are wonderful. I think they've, you know, advanced the art form in a lot of ways. Um, But what it, I think what it's specifically referring to is also back in the day, you know, you would say create a vehicle for like Ethel Merman. That's one of the reasons that Gypsy was created. It's like, cool, we have this really great star. Everybody knows and wants to see this star. We're going to write a vehicle for them. Everybody's going to come and see them. And then when they leave the show, like, you know, the show's kind of done and, you know, but we will have earned our money. So because it costs less. So there you go. And one of the things with the Mick musicals is there is no, like the show is the star. You know, if you look at advertising from a lot of those shows, you don't see actors anywhere on it. You know, it's it's about creating an iconic image. You know, Phantom, it's the mask. Miss Saigon, it's the helicopter. Les Mis, it's, you know, the, the painting of young Cosette. Um, so they're selling the show. And the idea with that is it doesn't really matter. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, it certainly matters that we have really great performers in them. But in terms of selling and marketing the show it doesn't really matter who's in it because the thing you're selling is the show. And largely because of that, it meant that these shows could in a way, and again, I don't mean this disparagingly, I'm just using this as a descriptive term, kind of become machines. And you know, you could go anywhere in the world and see Phantom and you would be getting roughly, I mean, they've certainly changed certain effects and things, but you would be getting roughly the same experience. And these shows were really good shows. And it was a really unique and new business model. And it certainly worked like gangbusters. But one of the things that that did was it changed, it started changing the paradigm a little bit to, okay, so now we need to spend more money on our shows, which then means we have to run longer in order to make a profit. 
so it was no longer, I mean, I'm, I'm making these numbers up. I don't really know how long it took to make your money back, like in the twenties and thirties, but like, instead of say, I can make my money back in on six months, it's, I'm going to make my money back in five years, but then I'm going to be making an insane amount of profit on top of that, you know? So that really changed a lot of things. The other thing that changed things um, actually has to do with the producers and scalpers. So um, this is specifically something that I believe happened with the producers. This is something that I was told by multiple sources. If I'm incorrect, then please let me know. But regardless, the paradigm of what it is is certainly 100% accurate. So basically, around the time that the producer, the producers was the first like really big mega hit, certainly mega hit of a musical comedy, like a traditional musical comedy that had happened on Broadway in a really long time. And everybody was rushing to try to get tickets. And back at that time, again, don't quote me on this. I was not, I was, I was a youngling then. Um, I don't really remember. I don't really know exactly what the the ticket prices were, but suffice it to say, they were certainly not what they are now. Like a top, top ticket price would be I don't know. Let's guesstimate at like, let's say $90 for the sake of argument. Like that was like a top tier ticket price. Well, you suddenly got scalpers and you now had major ticketing online and places where people could like buy giant blocks of tickets and then go and resell them. And so you suddenly had scalpers that were selling tickets for upwards of $250. And these tickets were so in demand that people were buying them. And producers certainly did everything they could to, you know, shut down scalpers. And that's what they, that that was really the paradigm for, for a while of like, you know, we need to stop these scalpers. But suddenly these producers were like, hold on a second. These people who had nothing to do with the creation of this show are making an insane amount of money. Like, and they're making it because people are buying tickets for this much money. Well, we should be the ones who were benefiting from this. Like, you know, if they can sell it for that much money, that means people are willing to pay it. We're the ones who should be benefiting for that. And suddenly ticket prices jumped up. So suddenly the premium tickets went from like, again, say like $90 to $250 and people were buying them. And so all of a sudden Broadway producers were like, oh, hold on. People are willing to buy tickets at this amount. Well, we should do it too. And all of a sudden, tickets started jumping up. I mean, I remember I managed to go see Wicked when it was still in previews, you know, like literally taking like a Greyhound bus into the city, like on my own, like to come and see it. And I remember that like some ticketing site, and this is, you know, years after the producers opened, was selling like a top ticket for $200. Nowadays, we see tickets going for like $400 in some places. Um, there's a great moment I actually love. Um, the original Pippin with Ben Vereen was filmed. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Cheetah Rivera is in it. Um, it's, it's amazing. But there's a line at the end where, um, I don't think this is a spoiler. Minor spoilers if you don't know Pippin, although this isn't really, I don't think spoiling anything, but basically the leading player, Ben Vereen's character gets annoyed at the end and he, he breaks the fourth wall and he literally says, look, and he's pointing, he's pointing to people in literally like the first row of the theater, like the most expensive tickets in the place. And he says, look, you don't want to disappoint all these people at $25 a seat now, do you? And it's, and that was, you know, in the seventies and it's like, wow, top ticket price was $25. I remember when I first came to the city for college that, um, student rush tickets 
were in the like $20 range. Like it really, honestly, it was kind of like you could go see a movie or go see a Broadway show. The tickets were not that much different in pricing. And now rush tickets, you know, are like at least $40 when, when you're going and standing in line. So that's the other thing is, is ticket prices have, have continued to go up because shows are now costing more and more and more money and producers want to be making as much of a profit as they can, but they also need to be making their money back for their investors. So that's, that's also a big thing that's changed economically. So basically the paradigm now, which has really shifted the kind of art that's created is it, it, it does not make sense to do a low budget show that runs for a short amount of time. You can't even do that nowadays. I mean, even if you had no set, we're using unknown actors, just the equity minimum salaries, plus the theater rentals, plus like the insurance and things like that. You're still talking like in the low millions of dollars just to do like a bare bones production on Broadway. Um, it's, you know, it's still a lot of money. And you're going to need to run for a long time. So so people are not sort of trying to like look for the next kind of cool thing that they can run for a short amount of time and then go on to the next thing. Now it's what show can I create that is going to be the next Phantom and is literally going to run for decades on Broadway because that's kind of what you have to do now. Um, and so we've seen this big shift f- kind of away from you know, innovative original musicals, although thank God we certainly are, are getting that still, you know, like Hades Town certainly comes to mind as a, as a recent example. Um, it might be more poppy. I'm actually a huge fan of Six and think that it's really kind of revolutionary in a lot of things that it's doing. But those are kind of the outliers right now. And for most, for most things that are happening, it's what's the thing I can find that is going to be a decades long running hit or is going to be something that honestly, even if it's not great, which I mean, nobody's aiming to do a show that's not great, but that is kind of material proof that, you know, people are going to come and see because of the name recognition or because of some really cool technological thing that's happening. And so even if it doesn't get great reviews or it's not the best show, it can still, you know, outrun that. Um, And that's another thing that we're sort of seeing is sort of the diminishing of the role of the critic in a way, especially in a world where, you know, you have show score and you have online bloggers and you have people that can share their opinions instantly on social media. You know, what the New York Times says certainly matters, of course, but it doesn't matter in the way that it used to. I mean, again, back in the day in like the thirties, you would all gather at the opening night party. I mean, you, you, you still do this and wait for the reviews to come out. But literally, you would read the New York Times review. And if it was a good review, it was we're a hit, we're running for forever. And you were guaranteed that. And if it was a bad review, it was like we're closing tomorrow. And nowadays, again, while it certainly does matter, it doesn't matter the way that it did. I mean, Adam's Family is a really great example where it did not get good reviews and the audiences really didn't care. And now it's, you know, it, it had a much longer run than people anticipated. It's now done regionally everywhere. Um, lots of people know it. Um, that's not to say that, you know, aiming for something like that is, is foolproof. You know, you get something like King Kong that I have to say the, the puppetry in that was extraordinary. And it was getting a lot of people in because of King Kong recognition and, you know, the technology still didn't do spectacularly. Um, 
for many reasons. But that's to say that the paradigm now is what can we create that has nostalgia recognition, that has really cool technology, that we can market irrespective of a star being in it. Again, we still want really talented people in, but it doesn't really matter who the person is. Um, that hopefully can run for forever because that's how we're going to make our money back because it costs so much money to do this. Um, and I think a lot of people think that once a show's open, like if it's a hit, like the producers are just like raking it in and it's not the case because operating costs can be huge. So, you know, a wicked, um, wicked when it opened cost, I think 20 something million to produce, which at the time it was not the most expensive musical ever, but it was pretty close to the most expensive musical. And they were sold out for, I mean, they're, they're kind of still sold out, but especially that first year and, and beyond, but they were sold out for every performance once they opened and they recouped their investment, which means they made their original investment back. And now the producers are earning um, a profit. They made their original investment back in a year. And that was considered extraordinary. There were huge articles written about it, like how on earth did they manage to recoup in a year? This is a miracle. This is amazing. Like, how did these numbers happen? Um, We're still talking about a year. Like, if you've put $10 million into something, I mean, I'm assuming that you're somebody who has enough money that you're not, you know, struggling. But still, you're sitting there and waiting for a full year to get your money back. And that's in a miracle situation. So you're, you're having to wait for a long time before you're sort of seeing any profit on that. Um, gets really interesting when you start thinking of what's going on right now in terms of Corona with the shows being shut down. Um, I don't know if this is happening or not. I know that theoretically, again, I'm not a lead producer. I don't know what the contracts are. People know much better than me, but I'm hoping that theoretically, because this was government mandated that shows can collect insurance, um, because, you know, you can't collect insurance on a show, like if you just decide to close or whatnot, but if it's government mandated, I'm, I'm hoping they can collect insurance on that. But theoretically, again, I don't know. I mean, you know, living in New York, there's, there's not a rent freeze on apartments and, and things like that. So I'm assuming there's not a rent freeze for these Broadway theaters because the theater owners still have to pay their taxes. Um, you know, so theoretically the theater owners are still paying rent on their Broadway theaters. They're not just not earning a profit. Like they're not earning money back on their investment. They're still having to do maintenance on things. You know, if you have a show that has a lot of mechanics in it. You can't let it just sit there for like a month with nobody touching it. Actors then, you know, are not being paid. You know, front of house staff is not being paid. Producers aren't being paid. Creative team's not being paid. Um, It's not really a situation of, oh, cool. So we're just shut down and, you know, we're getting money to cover it and then we'll be back up. You know, it's really hurting everybody. And certainly, smaller shows um, have had to close because of it, because they just can't sustain through it. And theaters were already dealing with reduced ticket sales. So again, it's become kind of producing on Broadway, I think has kind of become a bit of a dangerous game. Because again, back in the day, if you had a, a flop or something that wasn't as successful, not that it was great, but it was easier to ride that wave out. Nowadays, if something's not successful, I mean, people's people can be completely devastated by it. So yeah, so I hope that that gives you a little bit of insight into the 
very, very basic process of economically what's going into producing a show. There's certainly many more nuances and elements to it, but um, that's sort of just a basic thing. This is just sort of basic things that go into it. Um, it gets even more complicated. For example, writers on a musical um, share. They're, they're, so, so whatever percentage royalty percentages there are for the writer, that's divided up amongst all the writers. It's not like each writer necessarily gets like a ton of the pie. It's like this much, this many percent royalty percentages are allocated to writers. And then depending on how many writers there are, that's how it's divvied up. Um, and that's one reason why there are so many producers listed because you need a lot of investors. Um, that being said, I've been very, very fortunate to know and partner with some really incredible commercial producers who really do deeply care about artistry and not just making a profit. And that makes me really happy because we need people like that. And when it goes right, you get like a Hamilton and you get a Hades town and you get a six, you know? So, um, I hope that we can maybe move back in that direction a little bit more. Um, that would make me really happy. But in the meantime, um, to all, to all you listeners out there who are probably dealing with the fallout from Corona, um, I think we have a really wonderful community. I think we all need to support each other as much as possible. And I would really, if anyone from the government happens to be listening to this podcast, I would really encourage you to do everything you can to provide relief because, you know, our expenses haven't been taken away. And, you know, with theaters and stuff, again, I don't know, I'm not a lead producer, but I'm assuming that people are still having to pay rent on their theaters and whatnot. And that involves putting more money in. And, you know, for anybody who's just listening because they enjoy theater stuff, you know, support your local artist. We're all out of work now and we're all struggling and it's going to really, really deeply affect the economy of the arts and the world in general. It's not just artists. It's sort of everybody's dealing with it right now. But yeah, so if you have any questions about this or anything else that you'd like me to talk about more in future episodes, please let me know. Um, feel free to visit my website, um, ashleygriffinofficial.com. And in the meantime, I guess try to enjoy time off. I read a meme recently that while Shakespeare was quarantined for the Black Plague, he wrote King Lear. So I'm actually really excited to see what wonderful art comes out of this time of pain and, and trial. I'm laughing because I have no money and I am struggling too. So we're all in this together. I love you all. Um, and please let me know if there's anything that can be done to help. And if you are in a position to help, then please reach out to Onstage Network because I know that they would love to provide support to artists in this time. So for all of you out there listening, I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger. And thank you so much again for listening to Sage Directions. Stage Directions.